Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, April 4th of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And today we're gathering at 6.30 a.m. It's the Charles Willard in Minnesota. That's 5.30 a.m. Thank you, Charles. This Sunday is April 9th, which is Easter Sunday. We're working to be faithful to year A. Here's how we do it. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share a question and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us for today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Charles Willard, Minnesota. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And speaking of our lead, that's Bill Hall this week. He's going to read the scripture and provide us with informative questions. Hello, my friend. Hope you're doing well today. I am. Good morning, team members and listeners and viewers. We're recording this on Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, you're going to be listening and viewing at some other point, wherever you are in your time of listening May this Holy Week be a a journey for us as we walk with Christ through the week uh, to the garden, arrest, conviction, crucifixion, and resurrection. Um, Tell me the old, old stories. Okay, it is an old story, but we live in the here and now, and the Word of God speaks to us. Our passage, there are several gospel lessons listed for the lectionary. We're reading Matthew's account in chapter 28, 1 through 10. I read from the New Revised Standard Version. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us listen. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake for the For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, um, I take to heart... Uh, the caution that Charles Willard has offered us on occasion that we can't know a lot for certain 
uh, as we read scripture. Uh, There are a lot of gaps in our knowledge, and yet scripture clearly invites us to engage with our minds and our hearts, the rational part of us, and the imagination. So in a sense, my three questions are asking us to engage our minds. What do we read here? What have we discerned from commentary and our own reflection? And to engage our imaginations. The first question is a little long because I think it's important to quote the scriptures I'm referring to. And um, Sarah, I'll be coming to you first in just a moment. In this passage, Verbs referring to seeing occur at least five times. Verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Verses 5 and 6, the angel says, I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Come see the place where he lay. And then verse 7, indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him also spoken by the angel. Then Jesus, in verse 10, says to the women, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Sarah, to start with you, how do you understand what it meant for the disciples, including these women, to see the resurrected Jesus? And how do you see the resurrected Jesus? Sarah? I see a seismic shift happening right here. Um, and I, I use a geographical term, but I think that this is a shift in understanding more so or to echo the shift in the physical world with the earthquake. We see a shifting of understanding. So I see the resurrected Jesus resetting the narrative. Those who came to see where they laid him instead see him unshackled and resurrected. Perhaps the women come to the tomb to memorialize. Um, In other Gospels, we are told that they gathered spices and came, but in this Gospel, we don't get that, the granularity of that. Um, So Matthew may be trying to tell us something else. They are moving to memorialize and perhaps hold fast to what was before. And perhaps they've come to see if the promise that was made is fulfilled. Don't know. The clarity is not given to us. But Jesus shifts the perspective from what was expected to the unexpected. From memorial about lost dreams to a a moment of living glory and undefined possibilities. Jesus moves us away from death and and, and reliving in just a moment or a memory toward an active engagement in God's new evolving reality. Jesus snatches us from despair and delivers us into joy, from frozen by fear into action. What are we being asked to see that is not as we expected, but as God would have us see it, that would, that this, whatever that is that we're just seeing in a new way might be the thing that helps us grow the kingdom of God here and now. 
I think there's some comfort in this because I, I'm quoting Melinda Quivick from April 20th, 2014, her workingpreacher.org commentary. She says, rest assured, wherever you go, the risen Jesus will meet you. So that's how I see the resurrected Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Charles, how do you understand what it meant for the women and disciples to see Jesus resurrected, and how do you see Jesus resurrected, Charles? It continues to be a puzzle. I think the Gospels in all four of their realities demonstrate how difficult it was for the disciples to experience what they each one experienced, but I suspect in a in a very different way. And to imagine that they could figure it out and put it down, well, we know we didn't. They didn't put it down because it got put down by years, decades later. So it's it's a reflective process, one which we continue to pick up and to examine and to be puzzled about. And I'm grateful for their puzzlement, for our puzzlement. Yes, thank you, Charles. Frederick Dale Bruner, in fact, in his commentary on this passage, commends the early church for not totally harmonizing the accounts of the resurrection. Some differences I will note in some later comments I make. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner sees that as an affirmation of how speaking of seeing how we see differently and remember differently. Uh, Don, your thoughts on the resurrected Jesus and seeing him? I, I want to stay in the space that Sarah was working in. I, I, I like that. It's been an area of, for many cycles in this passage from the year A, where I've been working and thinking. And, and it, it's, I, I want to note that Bill is, as he was developing the questions for the week, if I understand, shifted it from what about the seeing for the disciples to what we see and how we've learned. I, that shift meant something to me too. So for me, there are conventions, practices that are in play here. And I think Sarah was kind of leaning in towards those practices of the old world before the seismic shift. And I have those conventions and practices too. I think there's some similarities here. Where do the dead belong, and where do we do? I went to a wake just last weekend. There's, I followed the practices, and I was standing by a gentleman who was visiting from Japan. And they said, you know, it's very similar to what we do there as well. So there's these practices and conventions, and that's where the seismic change, to quote Sarah, is taking place. So I think it's it's such a shock of seeing it goes all the way to our basic practices and the and the text that you're pulling out, Bill, uh, go to Galilee, there they will see me. Excuse me? And I think there's a strange humor in this, which is the dead is running ahead of me. You know, there, not here, but there. Uh, meet you, meet me. I mean, the, it destroys all the practices and the conventions, too. I know that there is something majestic here in terms of 
what's happened with the risen Christ, but there's also a destruction of the convention, so that's what I'm facing uh, when I read this over and over every three years, uh, that the dead are not where they should be seen, that they don't belong there. And the idea of chasing Jesus or Jesus chasing me is just exciting. It's exciting just for those listening in and read it for the literature. It's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good. Uh, so I just want to use three examples of the tomb itself, the convention, the tomb. And, and if you listen for the resonance of the gospel language in here, one would be, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, my convention would be, or ours, uh, to carve out a tomb, to, excav- to ex- excavate a space, to create a tomb, to create a place. We, are, we always are going to prepare a place. And there's a purpose in that. Well, that purpose is gone. So step one, we are preparing a tomb. We go to tombs to prepare them for the future. And the future is that people we care about are going to be placed there. That doesn't need it anymore. Second, we go to actually bury, to place, to place the body. And, and, and that's a part of our process. Uh, and, some, and it's permanent. Well, that isn't, that doesn't work either. And then the final one is we return, and this is connect, where I connect with Sarah very much, we also return to the tomb in terms of remembrance, returning, honoring, memorializing, telling stories, and confirm the life of someone who's lost, lost in time or locked in time based on our memories. And Jesus says, you know, do this in remembrance of me, which is an entirely different thing. So we go to prepare it? No. We go to bury it? No. We go to return and to remember No, not the way Jesus said. Jesus says, meet me, I'll be there, chase me, I chase you. Um, Very exciting uh, in terms of the gospel and the promise, and also just really super great literature as well in terms of chasing Jesus. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, It's very meaningful to me that the basic conventions of life just absolutely thrown out. That's what I've got, Bill. Thank you. For me, this detail and repetition highlights yet again the humanity of Jesus. It's impo- it was important for the women and other others physically to see Jesus. Now, we know in Scripture and in our own um, use of language that seeing has a literal meaning and a broader meaning in terms of coming to understand. Sometimes when we say, I see what you're saying, we mean not just that we physically see, but we understand. So both of those meanings uh, are in play here. And it reminds me of the Emmaus story in Luke 24 when these two disciples are with Jesus, but they don't see him until He's about to leave. Then their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus. Um, and it's also interesting to me that the resurrection occurred at the time of first light. The, the new week, the new day was dawning. On a human level, that's when seeing begins to be possible. In order to see, we need light. And just as the dawn progresses, I'm an early riser, and often I'm out at, at the seawall as sun is rising, and it goes from darkness. And sunrise 
the light doesn't just suddenly fully appear. It progresses in the same way our seeing and understanding develops. For example, Don, you mentioned previous notes. I go back and read our notes on this from three years ago, six years ago. It's interesting how my thinking progresses. Not that it was wrong before and it's right now. That's not the point. But we, we, we do progress. And I, this is an obvious statement. I love it that sunrise occurs every day. Every day we need new light. We need a, a new beginning. Um, I will quote in part a famous statement by George McLeod, the founder of the community. It gets at how do I see Jesus now. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of a church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died and that is what he died about. Uh, Building on that, I see the risen Christ in those today who are described in Matthew 25, hungry, thirsty, a stranger, alien, refugee, naked, sick, a prisoner. I see the resurrection and the resurrected Christ in those who have maintained recovery in an environment that empowers consumption and pleasure with little thought for the consequences for oneself or others. He is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Thank you. Question number two. What meaning or meanings does it have for you that in all four Gospels, the first ones to encounter Jesus are women? And also compare and contrast the responses of the women and the men. Charles, your thoughts on the women being the first? I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> okay. Uh, Don. Thank you. Uh, I've got uh, one answer. Uh, there are many, so I'm not throwing this out as an exclusive opinion at all. It's just an angle. And this is an angle I've worked on for several several cycles. And I forgive me for repeating myself from three years ago, but it's a, it's a project that I'm on. Uh, I think this is a way to confront the obsolescence of our conventions and our assumptions going forward, that there's real change here. And I want to give you some examples from real life. They are cheap versions of what's happening with the Christ, all right? But it, it, it this helps me get wrap my head around it. But I want to say cheap, lesser version. Uh, I've been replaced by technology. What will I do? I've been replaced by artificial intelligence, AI. I've been replaced by a robot. What will I do? My children have moved away. My children are not home anymore. My fundamental purpose in life is gone. What will I do? Things have changed. And so I'm throwing out the words obsolescence, change, upskilling, rethinking, 
repurposing in this. And the reason I'm saying that is I'm, I'm choosing one angle here is I think the women are there because they have a job to do. Now, I don't know that much about the culture, but apparently that's their job. And the men aren't there because it's not their job. And they're going there to continue the process in terms of what's at the tomb, memorializing, taking the next steps, dealing with the body. That's their job. That is the purpose. And that might be a part of the grieving process as well. And that's their role in that culture. And so they have a job to do. And that is connected to what we talked about in the first answers, which is so that he may be remembered, so that he is cared for, so that he is honored. So he is frozen in time. And he's not running ahead and nothing's happening. And I just want to footnote, come and see transfiguration. You want to see, you're going to see what running ahead looks like in time. Come and see transfiguration. That's a part of these gospel stories as well. So the process of entombment, the care for the body, memorialization, that's their job. I've been replaced. Now what am I going to do? That fundamental practice and convention is gone. Now what? That's my answer. Thank you, Don. I wrote down your phrase, obsolescence of traditions. <laughs> Sarah, your thoughts on the women. I'm going to lean into what Don said. I think that this is a first priority for these women to go to the tomb. They woke up that morning, or they woke up when they woke up, and they said, this is our job, we're going to go and we're going to do it strikes me that these women have been muted and unseen until now. While the Gospels are filled with stories of the named disciples, it is these women that we see, that, that we, that we um, witness, get to see the resurrection first. That's a gift. It also tells me they're the most likely to believe it. Um, Holly Heron's April 5th, 2015, workingpreacher.org notes that these are the ones who have silently provided for Jesus since he left Galilee. Like the angels following the desert temptation, these women have been the ones who have provided for the group. The women are told to go and tell, yet we never hear their actual words. We only bear witness to their actions. There's something interesting about that. I want to double-click on it, and I want to say why. Why we don't get to hear them telling in Matthew's Gospel? We get to hear it in other Gospels. Despite their fear and wonder, they go. Now, I'm going to contrast that to the men. It does not occur to the men to visit the tomb until the women share their experience. And then it becomes, ooh, I want to see that too. Um, So they race to the tomb, seeking to encounter the same wonder all the while not trusting or believing the witness offered by the women. The men respond very differently to the incongruency of their expectation. 
I think that we're asked, just like the disciples, just like Ben, to go of our expectations. Bill, you need to mute your, uh, your phone. That's over. Thanks. So I think there's this letting go of, of what we expect and and walking into the reality that, that, that Jesus is setting up. Um, the men elect to stay in disbelief while the women fall into worship. Men disbelieve and cling instead to the physical narrative of Jesus' death rather than the miraculous resurrection. I still think they have trouble coming around to that. So that's my contrast between the women and the men. Thank you, Sarah. And Don, I apologize in my excitement to check something. I forgot to mute myself. And Sarah, I was listening to you, but I just checked something. Um, not to make too much of it. I, as I mentioned, all four Gospels make it clear that the women were the first to go. And back, Charles, to a comment I made about question one from Frederick Dale Bruner. Uh, you talk about differences. Here in Matthew, there are only two women. In one or two of the other Gospels and other women, and then in John, it's only Mary Magdalene. So the, those who composed the canon did not try to undo the, the differences. I don't see them as contradictions. I see them as a matter of perception and purpose on the part of the writer. Now, what I was checking was Mark and Luke report that whatever number of women went, they took spices to prepare the body. Matthew and John simply say they went. Matthew says they went to see the tomb. Now, again, we can make too much of it, but back to, I think, a point you were making, Sarah. However you want to characterize it, the women want to go see. Matthew doesn't say what their purpose is. He's simply, other than to see, and I, I find that uh, powerful that they call it curiosity or respect or or grieving. Uh, they were motivated to go early in the morning um, and comparing contrast. Uh, Mary and Mark, Mary Magdalene went and reported the resurrection, but he says she was not believed. Luke reports that a number of women go in to tell the disciples, but they were not believed. I think reflecting the culture. And I think understanding the canon was finalized later, that early on those composing the Gospels understood how radically different Jesus viewed women. The culture would have urged the compilers of these narratives to make the men the heroes. That's what the culture asked for. But the women figure prominently in, in all four gospel accounts of the first recognitions of resurrection. Um, interestingly, again, not to make too much of it, 
for some reason this time, I thought about the guards who are mentioned. We usually don't even mention them. The women were empowered to go, and they were fearful and joyful with the, the news. The guards, they had to be males in that culture, were paralyzed. The men can't act. They're frozen. The women are available to discover uh, something new. And one other comment, and I don't want to say this too strongly to play into stereotypes, but I see the women, particularly Mary Magdalene, as quietly faithful. And I think there's power in that. Um, Faithful, caring, and, um, and respect and an openness to learn. And again, I think I said this a few moments ago, in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene goes alone. Third question, um, and Don, I'm going to come to you first. Matthew reports the angel instructed the women to go to Galilee, and there they would see Jesus, verse 7. Then Jesus told the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. There, there they will see me, verse 10. In Mark 16, 7, Jesus also instructs the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Here's where my little curious mind went this week. What do you surmise or suppose might have been Jesus's purpose in making that decision? Go back to Galilee, north away from Judea and Jerusalem. While Luke and John, in my reading, indicate that the disciples first saw the resurrected Jesus in the area of Jerusalem. What might the meaning be, Don, that Jesus in two Gospels tells them to go first to Galilee. Uh, this is, I, I don't know that I can do a good job with this, so I'll just read a few notes. It goes back to the first two questions you had. In some ways, it might not matter, but we've got the humor and the irony of them going out to meet or chase a deceased man who's running ahead of them. He's he's somewhere else, just in that general way. I think also, you know, he knows where he's going. Um, he's leading. People aren't deciding where Jesus is going to be. I think that's important too. Um, and then with Jerusalem, you know, in or out of the dimension or not, I think uh, I would say in this case, I have to bring in the entire gospel canon to say. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of context on to Jerusalem or not Jerusalem. Maybe I would just offer up the woman at the well. Where, where, where do you worship? Where do you, where do you find? Where is God? And I think just the simple going out and meeting meeting God somewhere else, I think, is matter. I'm making this. This is a very shallow reading I've got here. But going ahead is a little theme of Matthew and all the Gospels. And I would say if you're, you could make that a theme for the year, for any year. Uh, where is where is Jesus going ahead in his ministry? And I would say when Jesus goes to the desert, he's running ahead. I view the temptation, temptations as running ahead 
the temptations are all through the gospel. There's many, many, many more, but it sets the stage. He's running ahead. When he is in prayer, when he's in the garden, he is running ahead. When he's, when he's asleep on the sea, he's running ahead. Uh, when, and, and he does a lot of running ahead in terms of the dance teams. You go before me. Always think ahead. Always move. What's the next town? So I think running ahead is an important theme, and this is just saying that that foreshadows the true running ahead of what's happening here, the shattering of all conventions. And I'm back to the woman to the well. Where, where's your God? Where's your God? Uh, well, he's going to meet me in Galilee. He's going to meet me there. Uh, he's already there. And I, I, I'm attracted to that because – you know, the, the humor of chasing the dead body to Galilee, I, I really like that. He's alive. He's meeting me there. Uh, and when we talk about memorializing a memory at the tomb, a, mem- a memory that fades, that's the world of ideas and ideology and memory and respect. But that is so shattered, the, the where are you of that world, that's mysticism. The where are you, I'll meet you in Galilee, is anti-mystical. It's, there's a person, it's a person, it's a body. You know, and I know this is filled with mystery. And the gospel and the scriptures are filled with mystery, and we hold that close. But in this case, this is anti-mysticism. It is, it is removing my control over the memory of God, or making up what God is, to, to being something where I'm meeting a physical person in Galilee. Shatters everything. So those, those are my thoughts on that, Bill. By the way, they were not shallow at all, Don. <laughs> you wondered if they were very, very helpful. Sarah, I think it's practical. It's safer in Galilee for the disciples. If Jesus's intent is to sustain and build the gospel and to build the kingdom of heaven here and now. The disciples are essential to that. So it's safer for them in Galilee to get away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in an uproar. There's a bit of a a hullabaloo going on. Um, So I think there's that expectation that we need to protect the witnesses that we have. I think that Galilee affords them some privacy to get their heads on board. (laughs) To come around to the reunion, to talk about the, the, Peter's denial, to come to some conclusion about forgiveness and grace, to, some, to come to some understanding about how God is moving in the world, and Jesus is a part of that. So I think they need the privacy that Galilee is going to give them. In Galilee, there's a sustained food source. They're fisher people. They don't have to work so hard to figure out where to, to get food and how to get food because it's right there. Um, it's also time to connect all the dots. They need that processing space to see the larger picture, to prepare them for the telling of their story, to prepare them to be better witnesses of the gospel. And I think that's why. It's very practical. Maybe that's a girl thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's It's kind of a, okay, well, that makes perfect sense to me in a logical, methodical thinking way. Thank you, Sarah. 
Charles, your thoughts on Jesus telling them to meet him first in Galilee? I guess I'm thinking that it... I was trying to think of the of the of the, of the word that would, that would characterize my uneasiness about our the way that we are implanting on the past our own reconstruction of the way that we think that it might have been, and I, as long as we are conscious that that's what we're doing, then we're okay. Thank you. In fact, I would go further and say that's all we can do is read it out of our own uh, understanding. Um, What I'm about to say, I think, illustrates something important about our purpose in this podcast. You're going to hear each of us offer a different perspective on this, this question, and that's what I hope this podcast engenders, that you go somewhere else, that that hopefully what we offer are some building blocks, but that um, we hear and think differently. I appreciate uh, what my three colleagues have offered on this question. Here's my take on it. Looking at Matthew's gospel and not the others, all the action early on is in Galilee. Uh, Jesus is born in Jerusalem, goes to uh, Bethlehem, goes to Egypt, but then he grows up in Galilee. We're, we're not given any details. It's other gospels that talk about when he was 12 years old and he went to Jerusalem. But in Matthew's gospel, it moves after the birth narrative, to jo- it leaps ahead to John being an adult, and beginning his ministry in the wilderness. And then we're told that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan in the region of Judea. So Matthew's geography shifts. Only after Jesus is an adult does he take him out of Galilee. And I'm not denying that there were other stories, but in Matthew's framing, the beginning the nurture and development of Jesus is in Galilee. Then Jesus expands his horizon, is baptized, goes into the wilderness temptation and the other stories that we know. Um, and now in Matthew, Jesus takes the disciples back to where he called them. As you noted, Sarah, at least four of them were fishermen. That was in Galilee. Okay. I know I'd have to check um, some of the others. I'm not sure it says where they were when they called them. Matthew could conceivably have been in Judea and Jerusalem because he was an agent of the Roman government, but at least most of them were called in Galilee. That was home. And you very effectively and poignantly, Sarah, recast for us what, what that means. Um, Thus, uh, Jesus returns to the beginning. Um, And it's in Matthew's account, Jesus commissions them to go to all nations in Galilee. Also, as I understand it, 
from the scriptures and from non-scriptural sources. Galilee was considered to be of lesser importance than Judea. Jerusalem, Bethlehem were in Judea. Jerusalem was the center of political and religious power. We remember the question about Jesus, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, this little known town up in the north? Um, Gospel of John adds that Jesus met the disciples around the Sea of Tiberias, which is in the region of Galilee, where, he, Sarah, back to your point, he enabled them to bring in a large catch of fish and fed them breakfast. You talk about homey and poignant and human. I love that last chapter of John. And I would say, and I think I'm reflecting on something you said or suggested, I think Jesus is often where we least expect him to be. He's not in Jerusalem, the source of power. He's off in this out-of-the-way region. He's out, as George MacDonald says, he's where people are hurting, where violence is occurring, abuse, neglect. Um, And Jesus is where he is needed, but probably where we least expect him to be. Okay, I think I called on everyone. Don, I'll hand it back to you. Great, and we're right on time. Uh, always love getting to this passage every three years. I learn so much. And uh, for those of you listening in, uh, Palmasier Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. They're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A dot org. We always commend that site to you for great sermons, classes, discussions, disagreements, meditations, prayers, outstanding music, opportunity to take communion. So check that out. You're always welcome. and We'll see you next time.